to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. My guest is Dave Hollis. Dave is a New York Times bestselling author. He's the host of the popular podcast, Rise Together. He's a keynote speaker and a life and a business coach. He's recently undergone some big changes in his life, and he wrote a book called Built for Courage. That's what he's talking about today, how to live your dream and not someone else's, and how to find the courage to live according to your values. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down Dave's strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. So here's Dave Hollis. He's mentally strong, and this is his story. Dave Hollis, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Oh, Amy, thank you so much for having me. Well, I, I was fortunate enough to get a advanced copy of your new book, Built Through Courage. I know oh, it my. comes out in October, so I feel super lucky that I got to be one of your early readers. It's a wonderful book. Oh, man. Thank you so much. I love to hear that. And it's very few people who've actually seen it or read it so far. So it's great to hear anything positive at all. Well, I'm glad I'm part of the exclusive club. I know what that's like when you start to release a book to the world and you aren't quite sure what kind of feedback you're going to get. This one's amazing. I know you're going to help a lot of people. Oh, thank you. I'm excited. So one of the things I especially loved about it right from the get-go is that you talk a lot about boats. There's a lot of discussion about uh, ropes, anchors, those sorts of things. But what you might not know is we live on a boat in the Florida Keys, and that's where we do our podcast from. So, of no course, kidding. I fell in love as soon as I opened the book <laughs> and saw references to boats. What, uh, what made you talk so much about, about sailing and boat life? Well, what's crazy is I am not like you. I could not live on a boat. I don't even do well necessarily on boats. I am getting ready to go uh, to a mastermind where boating is one of the optional things and was asked, are you okay with boats? And I'm like, you know what? I just wrote an entire book about boats, seafaring, leaving harbors, being anchored, all those things. And I'm not very seaworthy. But the analogies of the sea and the idea of a safe harbor being a thing that we've been anchored to the way that growth lives out on these choppy waters outside of anything that we are familiar or comfortable with, it just resonated. And so I chose this nautical theme because I think for anyone who's reading it, you can relate to having maybe opted every once in a while for being okay with just being okay or staying closer to things that you're comfortable with and trading off the possibility of in that discomfort that comes in the choppiness of the waters being pushed closer to who you were meant to be and certainly in that discomfort, in a posture to learn and grow. Well, obviously we loved it since we're on a boat. However, I think for people who don't live on boats, it will all ring very true and, and make a lot of sense as well. So most of us had kind of a rough 2020, to say the least, but I think it's fair to say that your 2020 may have been rougher than some people's. For people who don't know your story, can you explain a little bit? Sure. Uh, I mean, I may in fact have conjured the craziest year of my entire life by declaring at the beginning of 2020 that it was going to be my best year ever. I was going into my 45th year on this planet, audaciously announced at a company holiday party that this was going to be my best yet. 
But what I don't think I appreciated was that I was not going to be uh, a part of the conditions or, or someone who could decide on the conditions that might bring my best year forward. As it turned out, my best year also happened to be my hardest year and that the 16-year marriage I thought would last forever came to an end. The company that I'd helped built with my then wife was something I found myself transitioning outside of. And so for so many of the things that I had been connected to, be it in my identity or the vision for my future or what normal felt like, were upended. And in those things changing, going away, in some ways dying, um, in those ashes, I had an opportunity to rebuild what my new future might end up looking like. And, um, you know, that's a, at the same time, exhilarating and terrifying thing to have happen. You're handed a blank piece of paper where you get to decide what gets written on it. At the beginning, it's more terrifying than it is exhilarating. And then over time, it just becomes more and more exciting as you figure out how to make something new out of something that was. And so um, the book, in fact, is a story in ways of having some awareness of where you are and the courage to cast a vision for where you'd like to go. And, and toward the end of the book, really just getting into the steps of what it's going to take to get there. And for me, I'm sharing quite a few of the things that I had to do in a totally unconventional year that on the back end, I can very definitely say, though it was in fact my hardest, that did turn out to be my absolute best. So at what point did you decide to write the book? What's interesting, and it was a blessing, like I had the book contract, I'd already started writing the book at the earliest parts of 2020. What I didn't know was how cathartic and how much uh, benefit there would be to just putting so many of the words of the emotions that I was experiencing in this wild disruption of my sense of normal, um, how it would help me process my own feelings, but I think also in the vulnerability, hopefully, that people can see in the book, showing some of the struggle and the way that I approached trying to learn from the struggle, that someone might see themselves in my stories, feel a little less alone. And if any of the things that I use to help figure out how to create a new normal from what was, uh, maybe it gives people permission, uh, a little bit of a roadmap on how they can do the same for themselves. So you were already a New York Times bestselling author. You did a lot of conversations. You talk, speak a lot about self-improvement. You've got a popular podcast. Did you worry at all that coming out and saying, okay, well, I'm actually going through a divorce and here's some of the other things going on in my life that somehow you'd lose credibility that people would think, well, who's this guy to, get, to give me advice if his own life isn't, isn't perfect? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I actually start the book with a letter to the reader acknowledging right up front what they're getting, right? They're going to get someone in me who is as they are, as the reader is, a work in progress, right? Like I am super proud of the work that I have done in the last few years, that I've done certainly in the last year, but I am going to continue to be doing work over the course of the balance of my life toward a journey that doesn't actually have a destination, right? Better Tomorrow is just a part of how I'd hope to continue to evolve closer and closer to this person that I'm meant to be. Um, my, my, the conceit of the entire book, the idea behind the book was to acknowledge that each of us were placed on this planet with very deliberate and intentional purpose, and that the work we have to do every day is everything we possibly can to honor the intention of our creator. How can I, in the actions of my day, get just a little bit closer to honoring why I am here? And my attempts to do that are going to go through a bunch of things that also make me unbelievably human, right? Like I'm going to talk about going through the struggle and the frustration and the challenges that 
frankly, every other reader who is picking up this book is likely in some ways also experienced. And I hope um, not in any way that like to dismiss people who maybe have put a little more polish on how together they have it or um, that they figured it out. Um, I'm figuring it out in real time with you, the reader. And I think that there's something freeing in recognizing some of the humanity that I have because it in some ways hopefully connects me as the author, you as the reader in somewhat of a shared experience of what it just means to be a human on this planet, walking through struggle, trying to do the best we can every single day. I so appreciate that because I think a lot of people would have waited maybe another year and then said, well, last year was rough and here's how I pulled it all together. You make it clear. Here's some of my struggles. Here's what I'm still working on. Here are the things I'm going through. And as you say, it makes it much more relatable because those of us who are reading your book can say, yeah, I know exactly what he's going through. I, I felt similar. There's something, I, the, the last book that I had was uh, in its subtitle, the word skeptic. Like I've just been someone who's a little bit more skeptical generally. And when you layer that skepticism on top of a world that in social media has so much curation taking place already, anything that feels hyper-polished or anything that feels like in some ways it's um, suggesting that they've completely figured it out without any allusion whatsoever to issues or problems has me suspect. And so, um, you know, no one wants to go to a sick doctor. <laughs> I, I, you know, I do feel proud of uh, a lot of the work that's been done and and know that the things that I have to offer are going to certainly, I think, help people. But to be able to come at it from a place of humility and honesty that says, hey, I, like you, also have days where I don't feel motivated to get up and get after it. I also have struggled with these coping mechanisms or have had to work on relationships in a way that I bet you've also had to work on them. I think, again, just like kind of makes it feel like I am not some cyborg that was built in a way that's maybe different than other people, but someone who, in the human nature of how I am and how I'm built, um, like you, is having to be courageous in trying to get back up and keep going on the days when things feel hard. I like that. I'm a therapist, and I wrote a book about mental strength. People automatically assumed, oh, you're going to write this book because you've mastered these things. I decided to come clean and say, no, it's because actually because I struggle with these things, not because <laughs> I... Uh, necessarily have uh, just the uh, mastery or the expertise, but I've been there too. Uh, and I found that gave me more credibility. I was concerned that it would make people think, well, who are you to give me advice? But I actually found the opposite, that when people found, oh, she can relate to what I'm going through, then the information seemed to be more credible. I have no doubt that your readers are going to find, uh, feel the same when they read your book, because you are very honest and vulnerable when it comes to the struggles that you've gone through. One thing that's interesting, I will say, is so at the beginning of 2020, I take a pause that I allude to in the book to try and cast a bit of a vision for how I might have this best year of my life come together by going out to the desert on a rock for three days without technology and journal. What, Dave, how might you bring your potential to bear? How might you honor the intention of your creator? And I, in that session, did a backwards-looking five-year glance at times when I did not feel great about myself when I was by myself. Like this question of how do you feel about yourself when you're by yourself is among the most important I think any of us can ask. And I was looking for any variable that was consistent every time I didn't feel great, where I was overwhelmed with shame or lack of confidence or just didn't like myself, didn't feel good about myself. And there was a thing that was present 
almost every single time I was in that kind of a funky space. And that was a lack of integrity, right? There was dissonance between who I was suggesting I was either to the people in my life or on social media and the way that I was actually showing up in my life at the time or how I knew I could have been, right? Like how I knew I was created with these very special and unique set of skills and gifts. I have this potential, but I am only doing so much, not fully living up to those things that I have been gifted. And that space that existed between either what I was telling people I was and how I knew myself to actually be, or my internal like knowledge that, hey, I've got these other things I could bring to bear, but I'm just not giving all of myself. In that space is where the shame and the lack of confidence and the just not feeling great about myself existed. When it comes to writing a book in the same way that you've just expressed, right? If I were to write a book representing that I got it all figured out, here it is, there would be dissonance in that. There would be a lack of integrity. And so um, for any of us, especially, again, in this hyper-curated social media world that we live in, doesn't feel great to try and represent the highlight real version of our lives when we're actually going through struggle. It eliminates feeling connected to people who, of course, are also struggling. And it eliminates the opportunity to get help from someone who maybe just a little further down the road in working through the thing that you're already working through that could offer a quick tip or trick on how they were able to solve the thing that you're currently stuck in. If you're representing that you don't have a thing, you're definitely not going to get help for a thing. There's something beautiful about the willingness to just say, yeah, me too. I'm going through this thing. Anyone got any, any, got any tips? You're going to get it if you can. So I like that. A couple of things you just said. Number one, to ask yourself, how do I feel when I'm by myself? to get an idea of uh, sort of checking yourself, how am I doing and what emotions are coming up and why might those emotions be? And then to talk about it, to be open about our struggles. And I heard you talk about that on a podcast episode with John Acuff. You were talking about this triathlon that you did and the swimming portion where you felt like you didn't prepare as much as you could have. And then thinking, well, I told everybody I was going to dominate this. And then you struggled with the swimming part. But then you talked about the integrity of saying I didn't practice enough. I didn't put in the effort that I that I could have. Yeah, it's it's a it's a hard thing to as your head hits the pillow at night. No that you could have done more but didn't. And my regret, my, my feelings around this triathlon that I was very public about, hey, I'm, I'm heading towards this thing. It's at the end of July. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to crush it. And I had anxiety. And the anxiety was a reflection of this knowledge that I had that, hey, the kind of training that's necessary for an open water swim and the kind of training that you've actually done, son, it is not aligned. There is misalignment in what was necessary. And you, you've you said, you made a promise to yourself that you were going to train for this thing so that you could complete it. And you did not keep that promise to yourself. Forget the you know embarrassment of having suggested publicly that I might do it. This was truly a disappointment in having let myself down because I didn't keep a promise to myself. And that feeling, hitting the head on pillow at night, knowing that you made a commitment and kept a commitment, that's the state inside of which you feel the best about yourself when you're by yourself. Is it easy? Of course it's not easy. But when you say you're going to do something, you do it. You, know, it's like you don't start the day with the snooze because you are immediately having a commitment of yours. I'm going to get up at this time as a thing that you can break. And so if a little thing like that starts your day, no, no good. But there's just a, you know, 100 different little decisions every single day 
that are a reflection of your decision to keep your word to yourself or not. And as you do, it's going to make you feel better when you're in integrity. I like that distinction that you talked about with the embarrassment that we sometimes feel. Because sometimes if we say we're going to do something, we don't really intend to do it or we don't really want to, but we our ego made us brag, like, hey, I'm going to do this thing. And then it's the embarrassment of what are other people going to think. But I love that you talk about that promise to ourselves and knowing if I say I'm going to do something, I need to do it for myself, not necessarily for other people. Yeah. I mean, hey, the reality is, had I trained as hard as I possibly could have, right? actually got out in open water, got a coach. I probably need a coach. I've never swam in open water before. If I'd done the things to prepare myself and then did not actually do it, I would have been completely fine. Honestly, I would have given my, it would have, there would have been a victory lap because I know I gave every single thing I had, but I didn't. And so the embarrassment was more an embarrassment of having made a, co- a commitment to myself and letting myself down than it was letting anybody else down or not accomplishing it. You can put yourself out there, fail, learn, and take that learning and bring it back. If you've given your best effort, who cares what anybody else thinks? It don't matter whatsoever as long as you know in the like depths of your heart that you've actually given every single part of you and everything you've got. Oh, that's great stuff. One of the things that you talk a lot about in your book is the idea that you were living somebody else's life to feel like you weren't really fulfilling your purpose and your dreams. How true do you think that is of most of us that we aren't necessarily living the life that that we really want to live? Yeah, I mean, the reality is if we aren't taking the time to understand who has defined what we value, then sometimes we will find ourselves, as I describe it in, in the book, sailing off of someone else's map or, or working towards someone else's goal. If it's, you know, societally that society says that good girls do this or real men do that, then sometimes it can mean staying inside of a corporate environment, as I did, for longer than maybe you ought to. My decision to leave the Walt Disney Company after 17 years of a career was tough. But I probably stayed two years longer than I should have because of this worry of what it might mean to leave a head of sales position for entrepreneurship in a world where they, the collective they, said, hey, there's value in this title. There's value in this status. You've been affirmed and recognized as having value because of the contributions that you make inside of this space. And that same value has not been ascribed to this thing that you want to leave this place for. And so when I made this choice, I'm going to leave my career for my calling, it made sense to me, but not to other people. And because of it not making sense to other people, I waited maybe, like I say, two years longer than I should have because of the worry of what they might think, only to realize once I'd made the choice that they weren't thinking about me whatsoever. Now, what's interesting is I made this jump into entrepreneurship and I did it with this ambition for impact. And as much as I'm so proud of the company that Rachel and I built and the work that we ended up doing to affect thousands and thousands of people, there were things inside of my decision to chase this dream that had me only after I was maybe 18 months into it, realizing that I was chasing her dream more than I was honoring the intention of why I was on this planet in particular. And so Um, I think we just have to be really, really careful that we're not trying to keep someone, whether it's family of origin, societal structure, norms, whatever it might be, or um, a relationship, uh, healthy or codependent, whatever it might be, uh, as the thing that we are trying to cater to in the pursuit of what we think is going to make us happy. Rather, 
really spending time understanding what is it about my unique wiring? What, is, what are the unique gifts? What are my unique passions? How can I uniquely bring light to this world? Is this the thing now that I have cast a vision for? And is this the map that I am actually sailing toward? If it's not, course correct. Because if you find yourself sailing off of someone else's map, you're never going to get to the destination that's ultimately going to provide you the fulfillment or connect you closer to purpose of this, again, reason for your creating having existed in the first place. Why? What is the intention of your creator? It's for you to sail off of a map that is of your own design. If you had to give me your best guess, what percent of people do you think are probably living their own life the way that they want to versus uh, being falling prey to all those outside influences? I mean, it's so tough, but there's just so many people in my own community that as I'm having, I'm doing a challenge in real time for the next 90 days, and we're in this coaching community, over and over and over, you hear the same kind of comments from the majority, the vast majority, I'd say 80% of the people, that they've lost themselves, that they don't feel connected to purpose or fulfillment, that they uh, forget who they are now that they've become who they are. And so like really like tracing back, well, who did you want to be before you became their mom? Who did you want to be before you became his partner? Whatever it might be. Um, so that you can so that you can really identify where, again, like, like where's your passion, where are your competencies, and what are the things that you want to do? Um, keeping up with the proverbial Joneses or fitting into, again, kind of like that, what does it mean to be a good wife, woman, mom? What does it mean to be a good husband, father, uh, you know, like man in society? Those definitions are dictated by people that are not connected to why you've been placed on this planet. They don't know you're knowing. They are not familiar with the whisper of your intuition or the voice of God that speaks inside of you that says you should be pursuing this thing. And so you have to push back against. You have to do the uncomfortable. And the uncomfortable ends up being making other people uncomfortable at times who've become accustomed to who you've been and the roles that you've played over time as you start to embrace your truth, as you start to embrace why you're actually here. And do you find a lot of people get just so caught up in the day-to-day, they get caught up in the grind, they're working, they come home, they get in the same routine, they do the same things all day, every day, that they forget to kind of look at the big picture. Like, what's the purpose of my life? How do I create change in my life unless I step back and say, what kind of life do I want to live? Absolutely. I mean, I I will say, like, not that I am necessarily interested in reliving 2020. Uh, I'm full. Thank you very much. Most of us would say that we're not interested in having to go through it again. But um, there was something really, really interesting that happened when everything that I thought I uh, understood or thought mattered were now, you know, rug pull, not there anymore. There was freedom to really inventory from scratch what actually matters now that nothing that previously mattered exists in the way that it did before. And so I think um, there's just so much noise that exists in the world, right? The incessant marketing, trying to convince you that if only you had this product, then you'd be enough, you'd be lovable, you'd be great, you'd be better, whatever. The you know way that news is trying to just scare you enough to have you come back and watch one more episode of something that is going to keep you um, on the cusp of fear-filled and just anxious again enough to want to tune back in. We have to fight for stillness. We have to fight for quiet. And if there was a blessing that ended up coming in the craziness of 2020, I was forced with 
a lot of running on roads, a lot of sitting in nature, a lot of time on something I dubbed my patio of peace to force stillness so that I could create a relationship with my emotions and understand what it was that I was thinking and feeling and connect, really deeply connect with why I'm here and what I'm supposed to do with my life. And I, if, if you as a listener aren't currently fighting, and it's a weird word to say fighting for peace, but if you're not fighting for stillness or peace in uh, an opportunity to commune with God or an opportunity to have some meditation or an opportunity to just become still enough to hear your own thoughts, you have to because the world will keep you just busy enough to never, ever pay attention. And you will wake up 20 years from now wondering what the heck happened and who you became when you were not being intentional about who you'd hope to become. I like that you talk about stillness because so many people I encounter who are looking for inner peace are just running around in a chaotic life and they're filling their time with as many things as they can to temporarily avoid anxiety or to ward off those uncomfortable feelings. And the thought of being alone with their thoughts for a couple of minutes is terrifying. How do you get more comfortable with that? Well, it took uh, therapy for me. Uh, it took uh, getting used to things that I thought were woo-woo uh, at one time by just doing them and seeing the the effect of them more than anything. I um, I started therapy with uh, someone who was a specialist in internal family systems about 18 months ago. And the idea that I as self can have a relationship with my emotions was something that seemed insane when it was described to me and has now become life-altering because of this ability that I have as the observer of these different parts of my being, operating and playing roles that are there to, in their belief, help me. Um, it's just an amazing thing for me to have a conversation with my fear, with my, my anxiety, understanding what role do you think you're playing and what am I meant to do in response to this help that you think that you're providing. It doesn't mean I'm necessarily happy to be sad. But at least I can understand why sadness believes it has a role in having presented itself. And that therapy, that like understanding, mean, I, what I just said for some listener, they're like, this sounds like a crazy person talking. I understand. I was the person who was also skeptical of this kind of work. But um, at its simplest, like the book Untethered Soul, as a for example, this idea that you are not the thoughts in your head, you're the observer of these thoughts that kind of uh, mentality is something that I hadn't previously embraced. I just thought the things I thought were me. And now that I can see myself as the observer or that I can see myself as someone sitting across the table from my anxiety, a separate part of my own being, and can engage that part. Hey, Clark, I've called my anxiety Clark. What role do you think you are playing here, sir? Why have you presented yourself, right? In this example, when I get anxious, my anxiety presents itself because Clark believes that there is a part of my life where there is so much ambiguity that the absence of a plan makes him come to help me uh, draw my attention to that ambiguity. Well, thank you, Clark, for pointing out this part of my life where I haven't currently had enough specificity to make you feel like you need not present. And so now I can follow that trail of breadcrumbs. I can put a plan together. Clark feels seen. We've got a relationship. We've handshook on the fact that he has shown up to draw my attention. I've created the plan and he goes away. That's not a thing that happened before, right? Before, 
I'd get anxious. I'd want to have a drink. I'd get anxious. I'd start spinning out. I'd get anxious. I'd feel like the world was coming down on me. And I'm talking about like situational anxiety, but that kind of thing happening before I had an awareness of how to create a conversation with these parts of me was, was, it was overwhelming. And now it becomes an exercise in having a conversation and understanding what role they think they're playing. It's life-changing. I love that you said that. And you even named your anxiety. Obviously, as a therapist, this is something we often do in therapy, externalize it. You aren't, it's not that I am anxious. It's that anxiety comes into my life and here's how I battle it. And when people externalize it a little bit, sometimes people think about it more like a game. Okay, here are the skills and tools that help me keep it at bay or here's why it happens. As you say, it can be life-changing. In your book, you leave journal prompts. Is one of the woo-woo things you talk about journaling? Do you journal? So I was never a journaler. I had no concept of what journaling was. In fact, I describe in the book my first, that, that first drive to the airport when I was going on this three days to figure out who I was meant to be and how I was going to manufacture this best year ever in 2020. I started crying on the ride to the airport. A Vici song is playing. And my worry is that I'm going to go on a hunt to understand who I am and not be able to find anything. That like I, I wasn't going to find myself. And journaling was the tool to help me understand myself better and to really, through this process of just freehand, no agenda, no technology, writing in a journal for uh, hours, 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 allowing subconscious thoughts to present themselves that I might now understand things that have been sitting dormant inside that I hadn't previously addressed. For me, having never journaled before, I was just told as I went, hey, start writing, don't think about it. And at about 20 minutes in for me, the breakthroughs would happen where all of my conscious thoughts had previously been poured onto the page at like 20 minutes in, all of a sudden something pops up and it's like, what is this? Where did this come from? What in the world? And it would allow me then to just follow a trail and see what this thing was and what it meant. And so um, journaling has now become a part of my life. It's something that I try to do on a very, very regular basis. I do try to carve out enough time to let myself cross that 20-minute threshold so that I can allow the subconscious thoughts that are existing that, again, just like outside of the grasp of what's in my head or in my mind. Um, and and as, they sh- as they show up, ask, well, what, what thread am I meant to pull on here? And if I were to pull on it or follow this trail, what might it lead to? Um, many of the conversations that I end up getting to have with a therapist are born out of the observations that come from journaling. I like that. And I really appreciate that your book has some great journal prompts. So for people who aren't comfortable journaling, that's a great place to start. Uh, Before we go, I just want to mention your podcast. You have an amazing podcast called Rise Together. And you have interviewed some of the same guests we've had. You've had Mike Baer, Mallory Wegeman, and then you and John Acuff, who's also been on our show, do these really fun episodes on Fridays. Can you believe people tune in to just listen to you and John Acuff basically talk about whatever you want? And <laughs> We're talking about nothing. Let's be clear. It is a 30-minute conversation about literally nothing. John's asking me like seven questions about the most random things in the universe, but that's part of what makes it magic. Um, Rise Together just as a podcast, the idea, the conceit was... Is there the possibility that by bringing in some people who've had a little bit of a different life experience that we might create something of an empathy bridge between their unique set of experiences and your life? And that in having this opportunity to walk a day in their shoes, might it 
soften some of the sharper edges of your heart? Might it have you understanding their journey just a little bit more so that in what already is a super divided world, we might create a little more togetherness, thus the title Rise Together. Um, and it's just been, it's been amazing. I have, I've been exposed to, I grew up in a super homogenous community in Southern California. I looked like uh, pretty much everyone that I grew up around. And so the idea of um, trying to push into community of people who are different, they might believe, love, look, have had life experiences that are different. Um, and yet we are all still having the same human experience. And so to find the common threads of humanity, but also celebrate and appreciate the nuances of difference is part of the magic of these conversations. And um, they come out every Thursday. So thanks for bringing it up. I love I love the show. It's really good. I've listened to lots of your episodes. So I hope everybody goes and checks it out, Rise Together. And your book comes out in October, but people can pre-order it now. Where should people go if they're interested in picking up a copy of Built Through Courage? Right on. Well, you can buy the book literally anywhere the books are sold. It is available every single place. But if you go to mrdavehollis.com forward slash book, as a thank you for you spending your $18.79 of hard-earned money, I have uh, two really great courses that you get immediate access to for your pre-order. There's one about finding your why, another about resiliency and mindset. And you get jumped immediately into a 13-week coaching program that I'm doing called 90 Days of Courage. We've got a little more than 5,000 humans inside of this community, and they are crushing it. We've had two, uh, two Monday courses so far, every Monday at 7 p.m. Central, 7.30 p.m. Central. Uh, we get together in a little private group. But if you pre-order the book, go to mrdavehollis.com, drop in your info. I will send you $500 worth of goodies immediately and then uh, introduce you to a community of like-minded people who are chasing how they might equip themselves with courage to become a better version of themselves. Awesome. We'll link to all of that in our show notes too. And we love pre-order bonuses. And I think community is a wonderful way to support one another in saying, how do you uh, be courageous and live the life you were meant to live? Let's go. I am here for it. The guy, the, the, every one of the uh, listeners here has, like you and like me, been created with very intentional, deliberate design, right? That is, this is the conceit of the book. You have purpose, and the hope is that this book might offer somewhat of a resource in how you can equip yourself with the courage to stand fully in that purpose, that you might honor the intention of a creator who made you as a limited edition, one of one, when you were conceived and designed. And I, I'm so excited about uh, everyone getting a chance to read the book. As you say, there's a bunch of active learning activities inside of it as well. I know it'll be a great resource for anyone who picks it up. I know it will too, and I'm a therapist, and I highly recommend it. So Dave Hollis, thank you for being on the Very Well Mind podcast. Thank you, Amy. I so appreciate you having me here today. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of this show where I break down my guests' mental strength-building strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of the strategies that work for Dave that might also work for you. Number one, create space for stillness. Dave said he had to force himself to be still. And it was uncomfortable to sit with his thoughts and feelings, but he decided to do it to gain more clarity over his life. Today's world makes it so easy to fill your time with activities and background noise, but it's important to spend time alone with your thoughts. It's something that I talk a lot about in my book, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. You have to get comfortable being by yourself. So whether you set aside five minutes a day to just sit and think in silence, or you carve out time every week to go hiking or do something on your own, 
make time to be by yourself. If you aren't used to being alone, it's going to feel uncomfortable. But working through those uncomfortable feelings may be signs that you need to make some changes in your life. And alone time can help you gain clarity about that. Number two, externalize your problems. I like that Dave said he named his anxiety Clark and he recognizes the impact Clark has on him. It's actually a common strategy that we use in therapy. Sometimes people say things like, I'm depressed, as if depression is who they are. It can help to recognize that depression is something that tries to drag them down and they have tools to fight against it. In my office, some people find it helpful to recognize what anxiety does to them or the tricks depression plays on their brain. And then they empower themselves to use their own tools to fight back. You might try that in your own life. Perhaps anxiety tries to convince your brain bad things are going to happen. Or maybe depression tries to convince your body that you're too tired to do anything because it wants to trick you to stay in bed all day so that you won't actually feel better. Number three, write about your thoughts and feelings. Like many other people, Dave said he was never really into journaling, but he decided to give it a shot anyway. And he discovered that writing things down had a powerful impact on him. That's one of the reasons why I really liked his book. He asked some really good questions throughout the book and left some blank lines for you to jot down your answers. There are lots of different ways to journal. You don't necessarily need to sit down to a blank notebook and just write. If that's what you want to do, you can, but you can also respond to reflection questions. You can buy books like Dave's that ask thought-provoking questions and simply answer them. Writing down your thoughts and feelings somehow makes sense of things that don't seem to make sense in our brains. So those are three of Dave's strategies that I highly recommend. Create space for stillness, externalize your problems, and write in a journal. If you want to hear more of Dave's wisdom, pick up a copy of his book, Built Through Courage. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.